Choosing the right words to open a podcast is almost as difficult as closing it. This is the little space reserved for talking about something completely different from what I am supposed to walk you backwards through over the next hour or so. Sometimes there's just nothing to say. And then there's no point in wasting my time or your time talking about nothing. But today, I don't really know. I feel like I have something to say, but I'm not sure exactly what. Do I bore you with this untrustworthy anecdote from a few weeks past? When I drew the Hanged Man tarot card and had two subsequent encounters of the Odinic kind. On my day job, I was approached by a child blind on the left eye. And then, without really leaving the spot, I encountered an old black dog, which was also blind on the left eye. If you know Norse mythology, you will of course know that Odin is the god of the hanged, but his main distinguishing mark is that he only has one eye. He is also prone to snooping around in various disguises, usually ones that project weakness and frailty, like old men and drifters. So why should we not see Odin in an injured child or an old tired dog? I like to fancy myself as one of those who pays attention to these signs. But the fact of the matter is that I am just as baffled as anybody else as to what this means, or if it really means anything at all. If you even believe my story, and, you know, you just have to take my word for it, we can always blame it on coincidences, right? That is, if you're one of those people who are disposed towards believing in coincidences. So maybe it's better to talk about the fascinating research coming out of Bronze Age cemeteries in southern Germany instead how these chronicle a society of defined social inequality and large regional networks. Cemeteries containing elite families whose daughters are absent, except for those who died before a certain age in their teens, and whose mothers were not born in the region that they were buried in, often in richly furnished burials. And while these women aren't around to tell their stories, it fits with a more general pattern seen elsewhere in Northern European prehistory, or so it seems, of women in the upper strata of society leaving their family to marry into others a significant journey away. So maybe we should talk about what their mobility suggests of their role in establishing and sustaining political networks in prehistoric Europe. Or maybe we can talk about the men buried in these cemeteries who, like their sisters and daughters, also left their native valleys in their adolescent years but then returned years later. We can tell by the isotopes of their teeth that they spent time in faraway lands, and we could talk about how this reminds us of the complex of the Indo-European Koryos, a sort of system seemingly endemic across Eurasia, of young men temporarily cast out of society in an elaborate process of coming of age, where they form gangs of cattle-thieving raiders and rebels, and we could get further into how this tradition seems to express itself in a multitude of forms in different ages, and how they may have earned their salt under the wing of warlords, how this gave rise to peculiar seasonal rituals encapsulated into European folklore, and how even the Vikings might have been a late expression of the very same complex, seeking to profit from and provide a manageable outlet for difficult adolescent impulses. But I intend to touch upon this in a future episode, so it would be a waste of time. So instead... Maybe I should spin you a fantasy about speculative, scandy-futurist realities, 
inspired by the recent discovery of no less than 20 new moons of Saturn, 17 of which are designated to be named after giants of Norse mythology. Which giants? Well, that's yet to be determined, and is actually the subject of a contest, which I'll link in the show notes below. Today's guest is often requested, and equally hard to get hold of, but I have it on good authority that if you bury a soot-red hen at the crossroads by an ancient yew tree with a dead thief still dangling from it under the waxing moon, and whisper his name thrice in the reflection of a Roman solidus, then he may just appear for an audience. I have done all of this work for you, dear listener. My name is Erik Storsen, and this is the Brute Norse Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. is the ravager of Rogaland, the man who built the burial mound for his dog, the hungest man on the windy tree, Axel Klusen. Axel, you son of a bitch. Hey all, hey all. Uh, how have you been? Good man, good man. Life goes on as always, you know. Apart from, you know, time constraints on my end, I'm, you know, you have had changes happening in your life as well. Mm. Uh, so where are you at these days? Uh, where have you been hanging out? Well, I'm currently hanging out in the heart of Europe, some would say, which is, of course, Brussels in Belgium. I see, yeah. Well, yeah, some would say that, wouldn't they? So, yeah, this is sort of a loose episode, you know, just full disclosure here. Uh, Brute Norse usually tries to be a nice and fully, tightly tailored historical garment, but today we're kind of opting for a more wizard-sleeved SCA tunic. Isn't that right, Axel? Yeah, correct. Yeah. We're just going to kind of catch up on uh, where we left off uh, last time we spoke. Maybe do some archaeological news, because we really haven't spoken that much since uh, Axel was on on the, uh, in the, uh, I believe it must have been the Archaeology of Evil Dead episode. Mm -hmm. Nearly nearly a year ago, actually, by now. Yeah, I suppose so. How is life? How is life? Well, I mean, uh, so on my end, at least... uh, I moved to to uh, to Belgium a little over a half a year ago uh, for uh, you know work prospects, life in general, uh, and I'm currently working at the um, Museum of Art and History, which is located in uh, in and around the heart of Brussels as well. Um, and I'm working there as an archaeologist. It's essentially the archaeological museum, the National Archaeological Museum. Um, so it uh, pretty much covers uh, the early Stone Age to about, well, the modern day, actually, uh, in the sense that it covers art history and, and archaeology and history in general. Um, so it's located in a very beautiful but old uh, building. Um, and uh, well, dating to the 19th century, uh, next to the Triumphal Arc of Brussels um, in Jubelpark, and uh, it's a it's a it's a lovely museum, I have to say. It's a bit bigger than uh, the size of museums that we used to work uh, in oh, for, yeah, well. and for uh, back in the day. Uh, so well, uh, we used to work for very small museums, really, comparatively speaking, at least. Yeah. 
provincial museums. Yeah, so well, that's exciting. Uh, mm. So I saw that there's a, there's a new exhibit there. I think uh, you sent me some pictures from that. Where some that's correct. Amazing artifacts being displayed there at the moment. Can you tell us anything more about that? Well, the exhibition um, that just recently opened is a temporary exhibition um, dealing with the um, early Middle Ages. It's called Crossroads. And it centers on um, Europe, uh, both towards the end of antiquity and after uh, what the period we would define as antiquity or the late Roman period. Um, and it looks at the, uh, the end of the Roman West or the transformation of the Roman West uh, into uh, the Europe that we slowly uh, had forming in the sense that you had tribes, Germanic tribes, which of course we talked about uh, in earlier podcasts, um, then settling in uh, the areas that were formerly Roman um, and and then shaping Europe. The OG Wild West. Yeah. Yeah, that's a recurring theme here on the Brute Norse podcast. I think we speak more about these Germanic barbarians than we actually talk about Vikings, which was the original intent of the of brute norse but never <laughs> necessarily the the only theme within the scope but you know that's just what we seem to gravitate towards anyway mm -hmm. yeah so it's about the the uh, the cultural uh, exchanges in the migration period basically yeah the cultural the exchanges uh but not just looking at europe also looking at looking at coptic egypt um parts of the near east how these areas were transformed you know with the um Arabic invasion into Egypt in the seventh century, how that transformed um, that part of uh, North Africa, and of course, you know, leading on to um, the conquest uh, into modern-day Morocco, and then of course Iberia, uh, Spain, and Portugal, and all the battles and all the warfare and strife that uh, Europe also faced in uh, that part of uh, Europe and in. in the southwestern part um, and but also in general you know leading up to the Viking Age and the uh, yeah the interactions between the Northmen if you will and the rest of Europe uh, in that time period so it, it covers approximately the fourth century fourth fifth century uh, to an about the 11th century AD that is, or CE. Hmm. That's a nice rounded package. Uh, so how long is the exhibit on for? It's until the end of March 2020. Here's a question I think that we've often uh, entertained ourselves with, uh, on an, but maybe we could share with our listeners. If you had a time machine, who would you go back in time and kill? <sighs> it's a difficult question, man. There's so many people. Um, it's a hit list, essentially. <clears throat> yeah, it really is, isn't it? Um, but I always said that, uh, and, and, and it's more of a, uh, for me at least, what would have happened if this individual never saw the day or, you know, was, uh, put down before his prime, you could say. And it's, uh, it's essentially Johannes Gutenberg, uh, oh, shit, the father the, of the, the printing, printing press. press. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what a maniac. Um, but essentially, you know, because unless, uh, I mean, if it weren't for him, you know, um, the, the, the printing press, as we know it in, in the Western world, um, wouldn't, or most likely, I mean, it, it's hard to tell, you know, someone else might have 
actually picked it up, but um, you know, the whole printing of the Bible in the native tongue and all that, you know, wouldn't have happened. So the, the widespread um, spread of, of, of the Bible or of Christianity, as we saw, you know, wouldn't have happened. At the so you're like a Luddite rate. for the written word. Uh, well, you're like Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski, of, yeah, of, of oral culture. <laughs> No, but I mean, in all honesty, though, of course, that's more of a joke than anything else. But uh, of course, the whole topic is a bit of a joke, I guess. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that we sincerely <laughs> stay awake at night thinking um, about these subjects. But uh, no, but I mean, oh, of course, there's so many individuals, so many individuals. Uh, yeah, because somebody asked me the other day, who or who would I like to have met mm. before they got famous? And I could only imagine these really horrible people. Yeah. Because I think that I'm kind of interested in... But that's in... kind of different, though, than, than, than actually yeah. killing them. But meeting them, if we're going to talk about meeting uh, yeah. people in the past, then, then of course, I mean, yeah, that kind of changes the whole topic, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know who, like, maybe Diogenes, I would shove him in his barrel and roll him down a hill or something. <laughs> well, I think, I think you'd join him, actually. <laughs> don't you think? I, yeah, well, I, I don't want to flatter myself, but... <laughs> <laughs> but but it does sound very enticing. Um, I suppose that's a question we could spin in all sorts of directions. Like, which tribe would you have armed with AK-47s and bazookas if you... Well, I, think, I, I don't think, think that... Yeah. Uh, please go on. No, I'm just, I'm just going to about to say that I think that's pretty obvious, you know, considering where we were born and raised. It has to be the Rugi people of... Uh, oh, of, yes, the Rugians, uh, yes. Of Norway. Um, and and that's, I think that's, that's, that's pretty obvious, actually. I think the Rugians is... Uh, the quintessential example of me taking credit for something I have nothing to do with. <laughs> uh, not only because it's so far back in time, but also because from my paternal lineage, or, or my maternal lineage for that matter, I don't really actually come from Rogaland. It's just in recent generations that I am a, a Rugian. Uh, well, I mean, sure. But it's like, but, but, but that's, that's in a good, long-standing Germanic tradition as well. Yeah, I was about to say, other, you know, yeah. it's the same thing. I'm pretty sure that a lot of the Brugians themselves could argue the same thing. They were never raised, or their, 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 their paternal or maternal lineage was never Rugian. They were just married into uh, ruling families. Uh, and yeah. lo and behold, yeah, exactly. here I am, you know. Yeah, it's um, like because I've been I've been reading this book about the Huns lately, you know, and the Rugians were among the uh, the people that were allied with the Huns, and that's mm. like one of the few claims to fame that the Rugians have. So I, I was very pleased to read the index and and see that the Rugians are mentioned multiple times in the book. You know, mm -hmm. that's always very exciting. Uh, but you know, the fact of the matter when you have Rugians down in Austria or whatever, you know, how many of these people would actually have an actual ethnic continuity, genealogically speaking, going all the way back to Scandinavia and Rogaland uh, in particular. We don't really know where the no, Rugians came from. We, we hypothesize yeah. that they came from Rogaland, Southwest Norway, but we, we don't really know. No, we don't. I mean, uh, the problem with uh, the migration period as a whole is just that. It's a migration period. And uh, pinpointing uh, tribal migrations, of course... As we talked about before, you know, we, we often envision that uh, as often the um, romantic uh, portrait display as well. We have like whole families, whole generations and, you know, their cattle and their whole livestock, you know, uh, being uh, carted away from uh, one part of Europe to another part of Europe. We're not talking hundred men, we're talking 
20,000, 30,000 people mass movement. Um, but it's it's hard to to actually view it in the archaeology itself. Um, and yeah, um, of course, that people were displaced, that people did migrate. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubts about it. I mean, that's why we have in in northern Italy uh, Langobardic burials. You know, I mean, they're Germanic burials. That's why we have Germanic burials uh, in uh, in uh, southwestern France. You know. Yeah, and and the. Uh, um, and genetic so, analysis points to many yeah. different heritages within the same exactly. burial site. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's what they say, right? It's very hard to tell uh, an Eastern Gothic burial from a Hunnic burial because mm. you have a situation where you're like, okay, let's say that you identify as Gothic due to your, you know, the the environment that you grew up in, the sort of uh, warrior aristocracy that you were tied to, mm. and sort of this this uh, political affiliation, really. Yep. And then you have, you know, maybe your sister is getting married off to, to a Hunnic prince or something like that. And what are even the Huns at this point? You know, it's, uh, it's not given that they're... This is a subject for a different podcast, I'm sure, but... <laughs> don't we always say that <laughs> well, <laughs> we always have to ramble on you know? <laughs> yeah you get what i'm trying to say mm, here mm, mm. no but that's the thing i mean uh, it's it's actually one of the more complicated periods um to 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 work with um i mean sure we have a lot of archaeology uh, from all over europe that we can trace back to this uh this period of time, I mean, it depends on what you would define as the migration period, because for us, uh, seeing that we're from Scandinavia, for us, the migration period is actually two centuries, approximately, from about the beginning of the 5th century to about the end of the um, 7th century, so so we're talking about 200 years, but for some other parts of Europe, the migration period is a much longer period. Um, which also affects our perspective and our uh, perception of uh, of this period as a as an archaeological period. That is, um, and 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 you know the, the migration period has been said to in some parts of Europe to start in around the third century and ends in around the ninth, tenth, and eleventh century. You know, which is what we would define as the Viking Age. Um, so so. So it's 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 kind of difficult how you would define the migration period uh, as a period actually, but but ma- but people moving, armies moving, Europe changing, um, yeah. I mean that is that is uh, we can't really argue that it didn't happen, but yeah, no. Uh, this seems like a fitting um, time to revisit actually one of the. Uh... Uh, one of the subjects we talked about last time you were on, mm. uh, which is of course the uh, the Yellow Star ship, this Viking ship allegedly mm. uh, that was discovered in eastern Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've actually conducted some excavations there now, and uh, it turns out that this ship, uh, I wasn't, what I wasn't aware of uh, at the time when we recorded the last episode, that, that is that this mound was also test excavated in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And the mound was t- dated tentatively to the end of the migration period or early Merovingian period. That's which is correct. interesting. That's correct. Because everybody's been thinking about this as this Viking ship. Yeah. But, uh, and there's not a lot of uh, solid news coming out about this burial yet. You know, we're still waiting for the results. Uh, but yeah, the ship does not survive. But when they came to the keel, mm-hmm. they found some <laughs> intact pieces of wood. And 
the keel, there's something a little weird about it. It's a, it's a little short or it's mm. a little small or something like that. So that means that they are speculating if we're looking at an early transitional type of ship from the early Viking period or maybe the uh, Merovingian slash Vendelera. Mm. Mm. That's crazy. So that's interesting, yeah. So we're really eager to hear what's going on there, you know, what, uh, what the future holds uh, from this site. Yeah, uh, but that's the thing, though. I mean... <clears throat> We're so uh, quick to identify any form of uh, clicker-built ship as Viking. Um, and, of course, when you put all the available data uh, together, you know, at least in Scandinavia, uh, most of these boat and ship burial tend to be from the Viking Age. Um, it's actually not that common that they're older than the Viking Age, or at least what we can see in the archaeology. Um, but that might also have something to do with, um, you know, the, the amount of burials that can be dated or that has been dated um, to the previous period or period, you could say, um, through uh, through modern dating. Um, and then we're not talking about, you know, because we have to take into account that a lot of burials were actually opened and destroyed as such uh, in the 19th century. Uh, with a with a gold craze, you know, spreading all over uh, northern Europe um, and into into the twentieth century, so so a lot of these burials where you only have the burial goods, as studies have indicated, might actually be mixed as well. So you have like two burials that are mixed into one burial, but originally speaking, they were separate burials. So you had like a Merovingian burial, and then you had a newer, younger Viking Age burial on top. But um, in some of these contexts, the ship itself is pre-Viking, but it gets identified as Viking because of the younger burial goods. Yeah, I see. So yeah. that is, so so that the is secondary burial affects the exactly, primary burial. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Because of the lack of uh, solid archaeology to, 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 to give any clear indication uh, on, on the actual dating of uh, the primary grave. Um, so, so, so that is that is something we have to take into account. Um, so, but overall, there is uh, a lack of uh, earlier boat and ship burials, uh, comparably to to the Viking Age, uh, as it stands per per today, you could say. Yeah, I think that that makes sense, though. It's like, yeah, it's. Uh... It's entirely possible that that's just a uh, sort of an innovation that uh, that gains popularity at the end yeah. of the Scandinavian Iron Age. Um, personally speaking, I'm pretty much on the same page, um, and I think that what we're seeing essentially is a gradual increase in this type of burial, uh, most likely because of the society and the structure of the society changing. Um, which allows people, you know, commoners in a way, to be able to be buried um, in this manner that was only reserved for the elites uh, before the Viking Age. And we talked partly about this uh, on earlier podcasts as well, where we see that in, in the Viking Age, uh, most likely because of increased population density, but also because more and more families are starting to become more and more independent, you could say, from a centralized government of sorts, if you will, um, where you also have, you know, people 
gaining power, more and more power, and where you have the elite, the ruling elite, allowing these individuals the sort of the same prestige as they would uh, be allowed. Um, so so we were definitely seeing something happening in the Viking Age. Uh, but it was all kind of byproduct of what happened in the Merovingian period, which in turn was a yeah. byproduct of what happened in the migration period. Yeah, exactly, you know. Uh, so it's like a, it, every, we have to keep in mind that everything happens based upon what happened before to some, to some degree. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that we have this democratization of Viking burial practice. I don't know if that's an appropriate or anachronistic term to use, but where society has developed in such a way that you don't need to be a big regional warlord or like a like a strong political figure to get these burials that sort of imitate the elite way of burying the dead. In a sense, somebody buried with, say, a spear and an axe or a sword, it, this doesn't mean as much in the Viking Age as it did back in the day. Or maybe that's not a good way to put it. It's more like, um, like the Vendel period, Migration period, Roman Iron Age, the Bronze Age for that matter. It had more gravitas, you know, because uh, you had to be a big fucking fat cat to get your place in the pet cemetery. You know what I mean? Because now it's kind of just part of this fashion, right? The habits of the elite are bleeding into the common folk. Or it could just say something about the political instability of late Iron Age Scandinavia, specifically in the Viking Age. And where people actually had legitimate doubts about uh, who deserves to be in the seat of power at any given time. And where leaders are fluctuating and borders are changing all the fucking time. But this isn't even all over Scandinavia, of course. I think that Denmark has a lot fewer weapon burials, and certainly weapon burials with swords in them, as compared to Norway, which might be a testament both to the fact that Denmark was more politically stable, but also had a firmer set of hierarchies that people couldn't step over. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with, a, with regards to the Yellowstad uh, ship, I hope, personally speaking, I hope it will have a much older dating than the Viking Age. Um, that it will uh, actually turn out to be a Merovingian uh, or a late migration period ship burial. But, you know, the uh, the dating isn't in yet, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, another reminder that uh, dating is also often based on general archaeological tendencies that are subject to change over time as mm. new material pops up. Mm -hmm. We have a very good example of that from Sweden recently with um, a very anatomical uh, stone phallus recently found uh, smack down in the middle of the of a carn mm -hmm. in Rollsbo uh, in in Sweden, uh, dated to the younger Nordic Bronze Age, about uh, 1100 to 500 BCE. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists were basically excavating this uh, Bronze Age carn, like maybe a burial mound or something like that. I think that's what it was supposed to be. A, a burial um, mound. From from my understanding, it was actually a cultic site. Oh, okay. So well, that's, that's interesting. Um, so the it, it looks like a carn. Um, but in actuality, it was uh, an elevated um, area that was uh, covered with um, um, rolled stones. Uh, so, so uh, what do you call it again? I forgot. Um, uh, These round, uh, round, round stones that like, you find yeah, yeah. Uh, next to the uh, coast. Um, so, so roll stones 
Roll stones. Yeah, um, well, it's going to up in Norwegian. Yeah, I guess. So. Um, yeah, whatever. We're lost in translation. Lost in translation. Um. Uh, but at least <laughs> you know. So 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 these stones were put there on purpose, obviously. Um, but in the center of it, you had the uh, the very uh, easily identifiable uh, phallic stone, uh, and and it's 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 no it's no question to what it's supposed to resemble. The Bronze Age flashers strikes again. Yeah. What a surprise, though. You're just peeling this down layer by layer, uh, all the rocks, and then there's just a big, you know, big... A sacred stone, chode. essentially. A big chode, yeah. Yeah, the of the site. Uh, what is interesting here is that um, sto- like literal stone phalluses are not usually associated with the Bronze Age. No. Uh, so I wonder if this has any implication for the dating of the so-called sacred white stones in Scandinavia, uh, which are already quite a riddle in terms of chronology. We know that they were in use up until the Viking Age, mm. depending on uh, you know the type and the region we're talking about, but they're primarily associated with uh, the Roman period and the migration period as well. Yeah. But even this is kind of on shaky criteria. It's, it's definitely uh, an interesting find because it does, uh, as you say yourself, uh, kind of cast doubts on uh, the previous datings of these stones uh, and, and and also the practices also the practices how how far back in time do they actually you know when did it all start essentially um, yeah because at the at the latest this is a thousand years before some of the sacred white stones yeah so it's 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 difficult for us to say but the thing is as well you know you have to keep in mind that um, practices do change over time but some you know they, they keep going from one generation to another. Uh, and even though some parts of the, uh, the rituals and uh, the ideas uh, surrounding uh, these white stones might have changed, so that the contents might have changed um, to the people practicing uh, this art of phallic stones, sacred white stones, you know, because someone had to make them, obviously. So, um, so whoever was in charge of making them... Um, if it was one specific individual within, you know, a tribe, if you will, or we don't, we don't actually know, or anyone could do it. Um, but for whatever reason, this tradition did keep going until about the end of the Iron Age, Scandinavian Iron Age. Uh, yeah, and the stones from that period were in circulation and that's what I mean. Use uh, uh, recycle all the way up until uh, the the modern period, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, we yeah. have examples of what might have been uh, sacred white stones, or in Sweden they're actually called grave orbs, gravklut, because hmm. uh, they don't look like the Norwegian examples. Generally speaking, it doesn't apply to all of them, but uh, where they're used uh, as house gods on you know farms in the countryside. Or they're used as healing stones. All sorts of superstitions or yeah, folk beliefs really mm. uh, were uh, attached to these uh, to these artifacts. Yeah, no, but that's what I mean. So so um, even though a lot of these stones are found uh, without a context because they've been moved so many times, perhaps we don't actually know, you know, and and reused for different purposes. Uh, as I said, both in the Bronze Age leading on to the Iron Age, and then of course. Um, in the Middle Ages and and onwards, um, but we do we do we do have datable contexts for some of them, which we know date to the Viking Age, um, and we do have some datable contexts to the uh, 
uh, the migration period, Roman Iron Age and migration period, uh, Scandinavian, that is, of course. Um, so, so, so definitely, if we're to say that this um, specific phallic stone um, is without any doubt a Bronze Age, late Bronze Age um, phallic stone, with you know, considering the context, then then as a Pretty good proof that that you know these phallic stones were were, were powerful symbols. Uh, you could say otherwise the, the the practices wouldn't have been kept alive for so many centuries, millennia. You know, um, so it's a uh, it's a it's a really interesting uh, find, and it does cast uh, a lot of light on 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 the whole practice of of making these stones. And uh, I would. Personally speaking, it would have been really interesting to see how they were actually used, um, and what people actually did, and not just our speculations. Well, careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, do you feel yourself getting inspired when you see this? Is it an idea that you might want to um, carry on into your own? Or excited? Or well, uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, well, lewd time capsules aside, I'm thinking more like, what kind of ancient funerary custom would you like for yourself? For myself? Yeah. As in uh, past tense, as in me no longer being alive, or well, we or, or well, leading up to... Uh... We know from archaeological theory that the dead don't bury themselves, of exactly. course. Uh, so you don't have any control over how you're actually buried, but... According to your wishes, if let's say that I was to to bury you, mm. how would you not like to die? To be interred. How would you like to be interred? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I don't know. Um, I guess there, there there's so many different ways. Um, you know, if you study archaeology and we work with archaeology, there are so many ways to uh, to uh, be preserved or or you know to. Uh, there's so many ways to, to be interred uh, or, or, you know, even cremation. There's so many ways to be cremated. Um, so it's kind of like a big, uh, it's a big question. But uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, the most obvious one is, of course, you know, have a mound uh, raised over you. Um, and, and I think, you know, that kind of follows the lineage of all the uh, great kings and emperors uh, kind of stretching from... Um, uh, from Japan in the east and all the way to you know Portugal in the west, um, it's you know a burial mound in many ways, in many respects is uh, is uh, is a pyramid, uh, albeit not necessarily always a big one, but it's it's no, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's very much a, a grave monument over someone that lived um, by 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 marking the grave with a mound uh, or structure. Ah, oh, yeah, I mean. That would be nice, but I, you know, in the end of the day, I, I don't really have that many. Uh, uh, I guess you know, it's it's all up to 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 whoever who whoever wants to inter me and whatever they think about me. I guess. Yeah, you see, I don't want uh, a big fancy mound. I think uh, I would be happy with one of those uh, cremation burials, though. I'm not oh. very picky. It could be my 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 oldest son if I have one, as long as they don't bury me alive but keep in mind um, keep in mind that a lot of people that were cremated were actually put into burial mounds oh yeah yeah well so yeah well it might not be course, your primary yeah. that the, you're the primary uh, burial but you're most certainly a secondary or tertiary a tertiary uh, burial, uh, burial no mount. you know what i want you know what i want them to do 
I want them to cremate me and use my bake my bones yeah, here we go. into steel, you know? I want them to carbon. use the carbon yeah. in my bones <laughs> to make steel and create a dagger or a, or a knife or a sword or something like that to be handed down. Uh, wouldn't that be cool, though, if my if I was used as a weapon in, like, an assassination or something? Like, something very spectacular? I think that that would be better than a, than a burial mound in my name. <laughs> Uh, definitely, uh, I can see that being the case. I mean, uh, I yeah. actually asked my wife to do this. If well, I ever die, please, you know, unironically use my bones uh, for some sort of steel implement. I don't care. It could be a cocktail shaker or something along those lines. It reminds me. You remember when I tried to make the the needum? Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. The the cocktail set based yeah. on the needum find with uh, like. A, uh, typologically correct champagne saver and, <laughs> and those little uh, heads that sat on the edge of the boat, you know, to, yeah. to sit on the rim of the glass. I know we're spinning in all sorts of directions here, but um, but yeah. No, I mean, that's, I can see that being the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll keep that in mind when your uh, your remains are uh, disposed of. Because uh, you have to pressure my wife when... Uh, when, when she eventually becomes a widow, you know. So. I, I don't think it would be much of a pressure, actually. I think she'd be happy to uh, oblige to uh, to invest your, your earthly remains into an object. Well, I'm not as optimistic as you are <laughs> in this matter, but... Uh, well, I mean, I can definitely see you being turned into a helmet or something, you know. A helmet? A helmet. Or a shield I'm buff. not sure if this is a dick joke or not. But then, but then you know, whenever I put the helmet on, oh, I'll... No. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you you'll become me i'll become you in, yeah you're in an incarnate. act of 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 cultic role-playing like exactly uh, like the like the neil price theory with uh with the sutton who helmets yeah you know yeah, the, the one yeah. eye for odin that uh have we have we talked about that before maybe we haven't uh the um no, the theory that uh, that uh, so. that that the sutton who helmets that the garnets sat on mm. on one eye and made that light up uh the highlighting uh um yeah yeah, hmm. unverifiable, of course, but yeah, it's it's not it's not too far fetched, really. But um, yeah, it's a it's a hypothesis, of course. Yeah, so. I think the hypothesis generally holds up that the chief nor the king uh, is supposed to stand in as a as a human, uh, you know, replacement for 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 the cultic religious function of Odin in the in the military and political sense. Yeah. I think that's pretty uncontroversial. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, Within uh, within the uh, later Iron Age, of course, uh, we're talking Roman Iron Age and, and onwards, most likely. Yeah, I would uh, even I would even argue to put uh, some of those ideas at a before. Yeah, well, yeah. that's when it starts. No, well, that's kind of those periods when it starts, or mm. you know, the origins go all the way back to the Bronze Age. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the main like bulk of this uh, kind of Odinic war ideology is probably a lot of it is probably actually quite young. Yeah. Like I'm talking about like specifically like the idea of Valhalla, but I'm going to get into this in a future episode, a very close, a very near future episode of the Brood Norse podcast, actually. Mm. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, but speaking of, uh, I missed the opportunity here. But back to burials, you know, uh, how about getting buried in a house? Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, because we have uh, texts talking about people being buried inside houses, uh, under the threshold and stuff like that, but. Mm. Turns out that in Scandinavia we also have uh, a category of uh, of finds called uh, dead houses. I don't know, mortuary houses. Mortuary house. We... Mortuary house. Yeah. 
And a, a new one was recently found. And I didn't actually know this, but about 15 or so have been registered in Norway in total. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found a new one up in uh, Trøndelag, somewhere up in, uh, in in middle Norway somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a, a lot of questions associated with what this building was actually used for. Was it a storage space for the dead, like a, like a, like a root cellar for, for corpses? Um, or, you know, in, in case people died, you know, during... During winter time, you know, it's mm. it's quite difficult to to actually bury somebody in 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 frost. So there's a question whether or not this was just a temporary storage place for the dead, or if it was a permanent one, a permanent resting place. And it seems to have been like integrated into some sort of mound structure, which might have been a burial mound, yep. which opens yet another vista of interpretation for burial practices in the Iron Age in mm. Scandinavia. Mm. And it goes to show that there's no such thing as a typical Viking burial at all. No, I mean, or or any typical burial, I would say, regardless of time and place, um, there are always nuances, um, and this is definitely one of those. Um, but I mean, there are, as far as I understand, also literary evidence that would support mortuary houses. Uh, but you're more aware of this than I am. But I I do recall, um, but I don't know the. I don't know where I read it, but it was a mention of someone wanting to be buried standing up. Uh, in one yeah, of, under uh, the threshold. Yeah, I but think. is that a threshold and not like in one of these mortuary houses? No, it's, it, kind it's of in his actual house. It's an actual house. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think this research is uh, very much associated with the archaeologist Marianne Hem Eriksen. Mm. She's done a lot of work on this stuff. Uh, uh, I'm a bit rusty now. I haven't haven't really read up on it for quite a while, uh, but she is particularly you know uh, well researched in that field of study, which is uh, uh, a cool niche actually in the study of of Scandinavian indigenous religion. Mm. Um, but also, but I think that there is um, yeah. Sorry. No, but also uh, looking at portals, you know, the the, thre- oh, yeah. the threshold, you know, ha- what it actually meant for people. Yeah, and these I, liminal little yeah. borders uh, yeah. from from this world to the next, and of course, there's a general uh, conception of the burial mound or the grave as the home of the dead. It's mm. it's literally, in a sense, the house for the dead. Mm. That's where they live, and uh, also it is, in a way, a gateway to the land of the dead. Uh, the dead use the the grave as a passageway that takes them from the land of the living to the land of the dead. So there's many levels to this mm. complex, I suppose. And a literal house for the dead is uh, seems to fit oddly in with this uh, this universe of ideas. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, uh, but overall, you know, these these mortuary houses. Um, they're they're not really they're not really that many of them as you said you know 50s that's found to date um uh, though i'm i'm i don't know um the the complete overview for the neighboring countries that is to say sweden and denmark um there might be apparently uh, in denmark there are that... apparently there uh they've been more frequently discussed yeah. as a danish phenomenon yeah apparently. yeah 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 but i mean the overall number is what i mean i don't know how many in yeah. total we're, we're talking about uh, to date? Yeah, no um, idea. But but clearly there's um, there's more of them than a lot of people would have thought. 
Um, so it only goes to show that this this uh, mortuary practice, uh, whatever it was in actuality, uh, must have been more common than we like to think. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, if it's more practical, if it actually serves uh, to be the final resting place um, to this specific individual or or even the family, you know. Um, almost like a, almost like a crypt of some sort, if you will. Uh, it's hard for us to know. Yeah, I've been reading up on um, Japanese prehistory lately, and um, I've I've come to understand that there's also a a similar sort of situation in the uh, Yayoi period, yeah. which precedes the Kofun era, which is the the period of of ancient tombs, literally mm. what it means. Mm. Um, where uh, they have burial mounds, but kind of like the Neolithic in England, they have like communal mounds and yep. stuff like that. Yep. Uh, but families also got buried in moated enclosures. Mm. So it's like you have, it's, it's almost like a little fortified farm for the dead, mm. where you have, you know, a little uh, mortuary house for them and you have a wall surrounding it and also a moat yeah. uh, that, uh, that, uh, serves as a, I don't know, to underline the continuity of their social status in life into death, mm. because aristocracy tended to kind of wall themselves off even then, you know, in in uh, in this prehistoric Japanese Iron Age. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not uh, it's not unthinkable that we're looking at something that, not of course, not the same, but something similar. This idea that, um, but that's also you know. The idea that afterlife is not it's not the end, you know, we have to keep that in mind. It's a continuation or even more so an improvement of the life you had. Um, and for these individuals that had the, the privileged lifestyle um, and the privilege to be buried and, you know, receive this, this form of uh, funerary uh, well, rites and you know mortuary practices that went into uh, interring someone into uh, a monument. Um, uh, it's it's uh, it's something that I think a lot of people in the West nowadays uh, they don't quite understand or they're not able to connect to the mindset that went into it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in, in a way we're more focused on the grave goods than we are on the grave itself and what it actually meant for people. Uh, because we're, you know, we're easily uh, taken by by uh, you know the jewelry, uh, the gold, the silver, you know, or whatever uh, is yeah, interpreted very uh, amount. Then. And we fail to we fail to appreciate what this actually means in uh, yeah. in the social context. That exactly. It, uh, exactly. And and the meaning of actually putting these things out of circulation yeah. in this world, at least, because mm. um, I suppose that the the idea is. Uh, that one hopes for an afterlife where the things that are good about this life is continued into the next and maybe even uh, continues in an idealized form. Yeah. But that's, that's the best you can hope for, kind of. Exactly. But that's interesting as well, because, of course, that, that, that the way of looking at it, that mindset um, is very much applicable to, like, let's say, ancient Egypt, you know, where you have the pharaohs and, you know, the, the eternal thereafter, you know. Um, but if it's necessarily that, that applicable to, um, you know, uh, each and every uh, 
burial that are that are similar to what we see in ancient Egypt, for instance, uh, is debatable. You know, and and a good example of that is you know, uh, of course, for them, the the thereafter was very much different to you know the thereafter that let's say people in Iron Age Scandinavia and Viking Age Scandinavia would have envisioned, and um, you know, even though you're you're interred into a burial mound, uh, be it uh, an actual mound uh, with a uh, with a chamber grave, or if it is one of these mortuary houses, um, you know, the idea that um, when you're dead, that you go to like this, I should say, almost like nirvana state, you know, it's like everything is just perfect, you know, or if you're going to your relatives, uh, that's just sitting there waiting for you in some form of a house or, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, yeah, that kind of reflects the, the burial practices, I think, very much. I think that if you went back in time and asked these people what they actually expect from the afterlife, they would have some idea, but I think it would be very vague. Yeah. I don't even think that we should take for granted that people expected to have a very grand and nice afterlife. Because if you go to, like, the indigenous religion of the Sami, uh, you have an afterlife that isn't really that great at all. Sure, there's no lack of food and drink, and and you have all the things that, that you need provided for. There's enough reindeer to, to hunt and catch and herd around. But there's not really any culture. There's not really anything going on. So the afterlife kind of sucks. It's a dull state. Yeah. There's no challenges. No. And so what you find is that the ancestors are often begging the living. This is a recurring theme in um, indigenous Sami naming practices. That it is said that the mother, uh, before the child is born, she will be approached by um, ancestors in dreams who are begging to be named, you know, renamed mm. in the new child so that they can live again on the earth. Because beyond being physically deaf, they're afraid of the social death. Mm. And the social death occurs when you're forgotten. Yeah. And I think it must have been similar in, in Old Norse society as well, because it's a society of commemoration. Yeah. Yeah. So that when you have been erased completely from memory, maybe that's the idea of the runestone as well. You know, you. but maybe then if that was that important, you know, maybe we would have more runestones with names on them. We really don't have that many. Uh, or maybe there were wooden monuments of something with uh, with uh, runic inscriptions. Inspired. Yeah. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, total speculation on my part. Uh, but these cultures of uh, commemoration uh, have, there's something anxiety-inducing about the forgetfulness mm. of the passing of time and mm. death to these societies, I think. Definitely, definitely. Uh, well, it's interesting, actually, because that's one of the things that we, uh, that I suggested that we speak about on the podcast, actually, the naming conventions of, uh, well, Scandinavian tradition. Mm. Going back to the Germanic period, I'm not really prepared to talk about this at length, but we have this idea that you um, you can name the the variation principle, I think is called, where uh, children are named after an older ancestor, usually the grandparents' generation. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be almost this implicit idea of a reincarnation principle on some level there, because there was originally a taboo against naming children after living relatives yeah so you name it after the grandparents but only if the grandparents are dead basically mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's a really interesting practice actually. Um, and um, I'm not really read up on this, but I think that the uh, that form of naming practices uh, or name, uh, naming practice is actually found elsewhere, um, not necessarily within Scandinavia, but elsewhere uh, in, in the world. Um, in, I'm sure in, it occurs in, all over the planets in some, yeah, some yeah, not yeah. in all cultures necessarily, but um, but in 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 Asia. Um, I do believe it's it's something similar, um, but yeah, I mean it's it's uh, more part of Asia that is, um, as far as I can recall. But yeah, it's 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 a super interesting phenomenon, um, and it really does shape uh, who you are in a way, because a name is very personal. Yeah, and it creates identity. Um, so that's that's the thing. Sometimes people have. A name ready for their child upon birth. Mm. Um, I think I would find that very difficult because, um, well, I don't have any children, so that I don't really <laughs> well. know. But, well, not to my knowledge, at least. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> but uh, I feel like, uh, don't you want to meet the person? Don't you want to have some sense of their? Don't you want to meet this uh, human being before you give them a name? Unless you're actually like intending to name them after an ancestor, then it's you know maybe a given. But mm, 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 uh, I think I would want to meet my child before I actually decide on uh, a name that suits them. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, there there's there's different ways of approaching uh, the naming convention. I guess you could say, um, right? Naming convention, and it's a. Uh, it's it's also I think very much you know not just cultural but also uh, at the end of the day you know personal choices that people make um, and from my understanding as well with the uh, old Norse societies that there's everyone weren't necessarily given a name at the same time uh, so no. there's a lot of variations and variables uh, when actually one received a name um, and, uh, and and by whom. They received it, not least of all. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that uh, that seems to be the case with uh, with early Norse society in the Viking Age and probably also the Middle Ages that you didn't give the child a name right away. You actually waited to to see if it would survive. Yeah. Uh, the first few weeks of its uh, of its life, mm-hmm. um, and then around the time of maybe like baptism or something like that. Uh, you would provide a name for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, and actually, uh, not a very well-known fact, but uh, it seems that in pre-Christian Scandinavia there was also a baptismal ritual. Yeah, where they uh, poured water over the over the child or something like that. Or that seems to be the case that uh, that was a commonly held belief in the Middle Ages that uh, that was also practiced by pagan ancestors. Mm. Well, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, uh, considering the symbolic value of water. So, yeah. Um, so it really does uh, carry a lot of uh, symbolic value. It's definitely something that is, um, I think, a lot. Of, a lot of people overlooked to 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 some degree. Not just uh, the whole, you know, baptism, but but the, the naming practices in general. We just take names for granted. You know, it's like you read a name, and then you read another name, and then you read a third name. You know, especially if you do read sagas, and it's a genealogy. 
overview, essentially. Yeah. You know, we have to keep that in mind. But that's an important uh, part of the genre as well. Mm. That's really what these things were for. Um, but yeah, Norse names are kind of weird because there are, you know, as all Germanic names, or not always, but very often they were dithematic. That is to say mm. that the name consists of two separate elements. Mm. And it seems that this is, you know, that these names uh, are supposed to convey the desirable qualities projected onto the child. Uh, so uh, men are supposed to be bold and fierce, so they get these warrior names. You know, mm. you get like Hathi Wulavaj or something like that, which is like Battle Wolf, mm. you know. Or my name, you know, Eric, which probably means Aina Rikiaj, Rikiaj being uh, the same word as Rex, you know, it's a soul ruler. Mm. Um, and some of these names, especially the dithematic names uh, of words, seem to be an aristocratic phenomenon that is not necessarily carried originally down to the lower classes of society, uh, and especially not in the unfree caste of society. Slaves did yeah. not have that sort of names. And they often had names with single elements mm. in them. Mm. But it's not always the case that these elements make any sense, that they don't. these names don't always make the sense that we think or expect them to to make oh. for instance a classic example is is Hallstein, which means uh stone stone like like what the fuck mm. you know okay uh, hardness is a masculine quality but it doesn't seem like people always thought too deeply about the significance of a name you have names like finn which means uh, a lap sami mm -hmm. finno ugric person you know but not everybody called Finn was literally that. No. And you have Halfdan, very popular name, very probably popular. because there were famous. Halfdan originally probably originated as a as a nickname, you know, half Danish. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. Uh, but not everybody was half Danish. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah. Uh, but it's probably there was at some point a culture hero or some kind of champion that people looked up to, and they wanted their kid to have the same name. Uh, like that's probably the order of things at that point. Mm. Um, Again, you know, growing up in Norway and you know reading um, the sagas, essentially, you know, you 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 have a an idea of the past inherited to you through the school curriculum. Even though, of course, some would disagree at the amount of uh, relevance to the uh, Norwegian curriculum, for instance, where we focus on this or the or the history uh, studies that we do, uh, you know, uh, in class. That's a big controversy these days, yeah, because you know, they're axing these pieces from the exactly. curriculum. They say it's not relevant or interesting uh, for the coming generations. I totally disagree, of course, but you don't have to ask my opinion. <laughs> uh, I run a podcast called Brute Norse. What what do you think my opinion is on this? Um, no, exactly. But yeah, so it's 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 interesting, you know, um, reading about all these people because um, at one point, you know, it just becomes like a big blur in a way. It's like, uh, like one guy said, it's like uh, reading the Silmar Silmarillion in a way, you know, like Tolkien literature. It's a bad analogy, uh, but it's it's kind of the same thing. There's so many people are being mentioned. Um, but of course, it's literature itself, but it's it's because, you know, there's also so many similar names. Um, there's so many people with the same same names. <laughs> That's again the uh, the variation principle mm, of Scandinavian exactly. and Germanic naming conventions. That well, you have 
because names are often dithematic, you can take one element and carry it down to your son. You exactly know? so. So you'll have somebody called Hafthur, and then you'll have Thorleif, the next uh, next generation, you know? And you can continue uh, that, and maybe his son is called uh, just Leif or yeah, something like yeah. that. Uh, and then you have also the where the principal takes you down the uh, down to alliteration. Mm. So you have names that start with the same letter, Thorstein, Thorhal, uh, Thorid. Uh, yeah. Those are all the same element. Actually, they're, they're all Thor, the god yeah. Thor. Uh, but uh, so it doesn't have to be that, you know. But it can be any, you know, with that th- uh, sound yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Eric, Einar, that sort of thing. Mm, yeah. mm, mm, it's pretty common. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah not exactly. A, not, necess- not necessarily like one generation directly to the next. It's often often alternating like every other generation. Yeah, yeah. If you're about to become a father or a mother, uh, that's also one way to uh, to follow up on um, on a very ancient uh, trend Practice in trend. Uh, Nordic naming yeah. conve- conventions. It's, it's really not that hard to do. You can just apply the same principle to whatever name uh, you want to use, essentially. And even mm. even in the 19th and early 20th century, there was a Nordic naming renaissance where old names that had gone out of use were repurposed again. So a lot of the names that we consider to be quintessentially Scandinavian today went out of use, basically, in the late Middle Ages. Yeah, I mean, when you have, like, ages. all of these... No, uh, well, in, the, in the high... High Middle Ages, yeah, and the late Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. Leading up to the Renaissance, yeah. if you will. But not only that, in this uh, this uh, Nordic uh, naming Renaissance, whatever we should call it, mm. uh, people also created new pseudo-Norse names by adding elements that are not attested together. So they actually created sort of a living tradition out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and still to this day, people also uh, create Norse-sounding names that aren't even that, you know, that aren't actually old. And I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, it's not as if that can be faked in any way. <laughs> you know, no, exactly. Well, let's say that I, I call uh, call my son Munthor or something like that. Mm. It's not an attested name, but it's a name that could, you know, probably exist based on the principles of Old Norse naming conventions. Exactly. Uh, and if you look it up at any source, it's not going to pop up anywhere. So it's not, not as if, you know, I'm I'm making any claims to its authenticity necessarily mm. no exactly you know so you're, you're you're continuing a practice that is ancient and and there is something i think amicable about that you know yeah um and we have to keep in mind you know all of these names they were created at one point <laughs> and and it, the language itself was created so we're just putting descriptions on the surrounding environment to make sense of it and then we carry it on from one generation to another and it becomes a language so one of the things that is kind of weird here is that the uh, the germanic uh dithematic naming convention is actually surprisingly shockingly old or maybe that's not i don't know what constitutes surprising here what, what is it supposed to look like otherwise you know mm. um but as far as we can look back into the past uh as far as we can tell as long as we have Germanic names, they've always had these dithematic names. I was quite recently surprised to see that uh, if you know the the Golden Horns of Gallahus, you know, 
mm-hmm. which are now lost, but we have, you know, reproductions in the Cass, museum or whatever, yeah. you know. There's a runic inscription on one of them. You know, it says, Hlevagastig horna tawido or something like that. Yeah. So, Hlevagastig made the horns. And uh, this name, Hlevagastig, actually has a direct Greek counterpart, Kleosenos, or I don't know how to pronounce it properly <laughs> in Greek, but but it goes to show that this is probably a convention that goes all the way back to, uh, you know, I'm not an expert, but clearly some Indo-European thing. And the Negao helmets, you have um, Harigastij mm. as well. Or Harigasti is the form that it says in. Uh, so, yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, this, uh, this is probably a very, very old, archaic tradition. Which was kept alive. Yeah, it's good. I guess that's kind of everything we had envisioned for this episode, basically. Pretty much. I'm kind of tired, much. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Should we just quit it here? I think it's a good time to do so. Yeah, we don't need no fucking outro. We don't need no departure from here. It's our podcast. We can do whatever the hell we want. Nothing (laughs) you listeners can do about it. Masters in Old Norse, everywhere I go, people don't know what I'm saying. Spending all my days translating heroic lays my sanity is quickly decaying there will come a day the discipline will fade then what will they say about me when the end comes i know they'll say masters in a loss <laughs> life goes on without thee cause i ain't got no tenure no Job prospects, no PhD. All I've got's my patrons and a few lousy bucks selling teas. Got no PhD. I got and a few. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Noise Podcast and for being such swell folks. Thank you from the blood-spattered streets of New York where the marijuana smoke sits thick in the air but you can't have a drink in the park. <laughs> Ain't that something? Thank you. Thank each and every one of you from the haunted fjords of Finnmark to the extremes of the Danelaw. I love all my listeners and supporters all the same. I don't care if you're Norwegian, Swedish or even Danish. In fact, some of my best friends are Faroese. I don't have any Japanese listeners that I know of, but that would be fucking cool. I got no tenure, that is true. But I don't care. As long as you support me on patreon.com forward slash brute norse or buy some of my rad fucking teas. Or else I'm gonna fucking come back and haunt you when I die. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past me to spend eternity in that way. I think it would be quite entertaining, actually. And if I don't do an in-depth, I sure as hell will curse you in life. 
thank you. Thank you for walking backwards into the future with me today. I mean, there's so much good stuff coming up. Thank you for being so patient. I know I, I know I can release stuff a little irregularly, but it takes a lot of my time. I'm working very hard. I got a lot of podcasts down the pipeline. Well, anyway, thank you. And thank you again. No, really, thank you. And you? And thank you. And thank you. Fuck you. Thank you. Yeah, I think if we can amass like a billion dollars, that's enough for me to buy maybe some of that Greenlandic uranium and drop like a big fat dirty bomb on Charlemagne's tomb Aachen Cathedral. Yeah, it's been a good run. Yeah, don't you think so? Yeah. Thank you.